Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, there are a number of issues or realities where good-hearted people are overwhelmed and frankly misled about how isolated they are in their view and what levers of power they may have to pull on. We can live in a better world, and we should interrogate those who say, oh, no, we're smarter people, and we're here to say you just can't. One of those stories is migration or immigration, or to be real, do black and brown people have a right to move freely in the world? If not, why not? Another issue is health care. Do we really need to be making choices between seniors getting needed health care and other people getting needed health care? Do we need to run our health care system on for-profit incentivizing? Is there genuinely no other way? These are big conversations that have to happen outside and without corporate news media who are literally invested in particular responses and not others. So we're going to get some ideas of where to start this week with Silky Shaw, Executive Director at Detention Watch Project, about the Ciudad Juarez fire and what it tells us about immigration policy. And also with Egan Kemp, healthcare policy advocate at Public Citizen, about the fight around Medicare and Medicare Advantage and where that places us in a conversation about healthcare rights and responsibilities. Conversations that cry for bigger and deeper conversations. This week on Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. While it was a nightmare, the March 27th fire at a migrant detention center in Ciudad Juarez that killed at least 40 people and injured dozens more is inappropriately labeled an accident. Not when it's more an illustration of systemic harms that reflect inhumane policy. Silky Shaw is executive director at Detention Watch Project. She joins us now by phone from Washington State. Welcome to Counterspin, Silky Shaw. Thanks so much for having me on. Well, the hundreds of people protesting and, frankly, grieving outside of the Ciudad Juarez Detention Center on Tuesday night, the 28th, they weren't calling for better fire protections or less overcrowding. The chant that the group took up was justicia. It isn't that they aren't connected, but these are fundamentally different conversations to have, right, about justice or about better conditions. Yeah, I mean, one of the things when you're watching the video of the fire taking place and the guards leaving as men are locked up in the cells at the migrant detention center in Juarez, it reminded me a lot of what happened during Katrina, during Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans so many years ago when actually guards just left people locked up in cells as water rose. And this is what we know about 
the prison system in the U.S., the jail system in the U.S. And a lot of what the U.S. is doing, which is outsourcing immigrant detention to Mexico, and this has been especially since the Trump administration, the number of people locked up in migrant detention centers, which they called immigration stations, in Mexico has risen dramatically. Well, I saw the NBCnews.com headline, Advocates decry inhumane conditions of Mexico's migrant detention centers after deadly fire. That was the headline. And I might sound pedantic, but words mean things. And so this headline tells me that conditions are the problem, right? That it's a Mexican problem. And that it's only advocates whoever they are, that are mad. And maybe maybe they weren't even mad until the fire, you know? Um, so, like, there's a lot of storytelling happening here. And I just wonder what you make of the way media talk about the fire and the way that that fits into this bigger narrative. I mean, one of the things about the way immigrant detention is covered, both in the U.S. and now more so in Mexico, as the numbers have risen is it's an assumption that detention should exist, that people should be detained just because they are on the move, because they're trying to, for most of the men who are in these, I mean, for all the men who are in these prisons in migrant detention centers in Mexico, they are seeking safety. They are fleeing situations. Most of them were Guatemalan, and they were trying to get into the U.S. And so what's happening in that headline is a story that, well, there's this people who are migrating need to be detained, an assumption already being made about that. The problem is the conditions and not actually anything else, which is not offering legal pathways, creating more militarization at the border, pushing for deterrence, everything that the U.S. government has been doing for many, many years and became even that much more heightened since 9-11 and also under the Trump administration. But the truth is the Biden administration has continued Trump-era policies that have only exacerbated these conditions. So more people are stuck in these towns at the border and the shelters don't have availability. People are on the streets and then they're pushing them to put them in these quote-unquote migration stations. And these are the conditions that end up taking place, you know, and again, people don't want to be deported and they protest inside these situations while people are incarcerated is is quite typical. And, and instead what happened here now is that the Mexican government is putting blame on the guards, which should get blamed, but also what are the conditions that were created where you now have, men stuck in these facilities when the fire is happening and people passing the buck in terms of who's responsible. Yeah, I mean, I think that the conversation needs like a paradigm shift. Narrative is so important. Storytelling is so important in the way that U.S. media present immigration. And you've written about this and spoken about this, about the idea of there's good immigrants and there's bad immigrants. And it's it's narrative plays such an important role. But one of the important things that it does is to say, 
some people just by virtue of trying to move from one country to another are criminals and should be treated as criminals. And that framing really um, instructs news media in terms of how they tell folks about what's happening. Absolutely. I mean, and it's such a, you know, the U.S. has the large, you know, it's the quote-unquote nation of immigrants, but the U.S. incarcerates more immigrants than anywhere else in the world. And you can't deny that relationship to mass incarceration in the U.S. because, again, the U.S. is one of the leading incarcerators in the world. And we have a massive prison and jail system. And the narrative around, and even now in the sort of backlash to the uprisings in 2020 and tough on crime narratives and so much of that is placed on immigrants. Now immigrants are quote unquote committing crime and the act of, you know, being in the U.S. without documentation isn't technically a crime, but crossing the border is, a, if, if you get caught or not prosecuted, you are convicted of a crime and could spend anywhere from 30 days, six months to two years in prison for that. Um, and one of, and so a lot of, a lot of it is a, the narrative and it's also ignorance about the political economy that's created around these systems as well. Um, and we see that at the border as well in terms of militarization, who are the contractors, who are the people who are making money off of more border militarization, off of more prisons being at the border. And the U.S. really, again, the Biden administration has completely followed Trump's path in creating these conditions, pushing more militarization, pushing for these policies that make the conditions on the Mexican side of the border that much worse. Well, I want to actually pull this to a different point, because I feel like media segregate a lot of issues and border issues are one thing. But then there's a whole separate section of the paper that talks about the global economy, right? And that's a whole other thing. So corporate media will report every day with a straight face how Walmart or whatever, oh, just naturally they're getting their labor in Bangladesh and just naturally they're stashing their profits offshore, you know, to skip out on U.S. taxes, because, you know, transnational corporations do what they got to do. And the idea that capital need observe no borders but humans right. or, you know, labor um, should actually die trying to cross them. You know, I mean, that's a square peg in a round hole, even at the level of so-called economic theory. But this kind of discordant lopsided vision holds sway in news media as if it were economic dogma. Absolutely. And, you know, I, especially, I mean, NAFTA is the perfect example mm -hmm. of what you're talking about, where now borders were open for capital, borders were open for companies, borders were open for trade. But people like that was also the moment that the Clinton administration put in a prevention through deterrence approach to the border, which made it that much more difficult for people to come. And many people who came, I mean, one of the things that sort of happened is immigration in the minds of the U.S. media is a question of crime and safety, when in fact, it's really a question of labor migration and family relationships. And so instead, 
all of these tough on crime, um, war on drugs. I mean, of course, now the border is the site of the fentanyl crisis when, in fact, the opioid crisis is really a public health question. And so these are the kinds of narratives that are put forth. And and it really prevents, again, the, the idea capitalism is fine, but the conditions that the U.S. has created because of U.S.-backed wars in other parts of the world, U.S. empire, and also globalization are not things we're supposed to actually consider when we're looking, and climate catastrophe for that matter, are not things we're supposed to consider when they're putting in these policies at the border. And, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll take this up in the future, but I do want to tell folks that activists and advocates and workers are already doing international work, are already doing cross-border work. You know, we recognize that workers are workers wherever they are. People are people wherever they are. It's just that that work is not necessarily, that transnational work is not necessarily acknowledged uh, by news media. And so people might not be aware that it's happening, but it's happening. Absolutely. And, you know, especially at the border, this is where it's happening. And I think many communities are in conversation with each other trying to figure out how to support um, migrants really struggling. I mean, it's it's a really challenging situation. And there is a lot of opportunity to figure this out. And again, as the Mexican government has grown its detention system, there's also the International Detention Coalition that has offices in in Mexico City and has also been working on this and we've been in communication with them. And and it, in so many ways, our ability to sort of address these issues, it can't just be this insular U.S. focus. It really needs to be a global conversation to prevent future deaths. We've been speaking with Silky Shaw, Executive Director at Detention Watch Network. They're online right where you'd look at detentionwatchnetwork.org. Silky Shaw, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thanks so much for having me. You may have seen television ads warning ominously of D.C. liberals breaking promises to seniors with proposed cuts to Medicare Advantage and calling on local legislators to fight back. You might wonder why a multi-million dollar scare campaign would be the first recourse of a deep-pocketed industry that was genuinely concerned with senior citizens' health care and well-being. But the health insurance system in the United States is nothing if not confusing. And as with any situation created and sustained by human actions, you're right to wonder, is this the best we can do? How can we do better? Or more pointedly, why can't we do better when we know we have a population that needs health care and a country that can afford it? News media could play an informing and an explaining role here, but that's not what seems to happen. Egan Kemp is healthcare policy advocate at Public Citizen. And he joins us now by phone from Salt Lake City. Welcome to Counterspin, Egan Kemp. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Well, I'm going to ask you multiple things, and we can't do justice in the time we have, but I do want to ask you just to orient us a bit, because right now, 
We're kind of in the midst of competing claims. The proposed changes to Medicare Advantage are either going to take needed medicine away from seniors, or they're about combating fraud and overbilling. Understanding that we're not talking about a perfect response to a perfectly defined problem, what are we kind of looking at? right now with Medicare Advantage and the Biden proposals on changes. What's a useful way to understand that? Yeah, it's it's really a crucial time for Medicare Advantage and for the Medicare program more generally. I think the reason that you're seeing these ads, you know, trying to scare people into uh, getting their legislator to protect Medicare Advantage is that a lot of Medicare Advantage insurers have been caught with their hand in the cookie jar. Just to step back briefly, you know, traditional Medicare, you know, has been around for a long time and has, has served, you know, millions of Americans, hundreds of millions of Americans. But the Medicare Advantage plan is is more recent and just around in the past couple decades, but it's been growing quickly. And the Medicare Advantage plan, sort of the big difference there is they're able to profit off the health care for seniors, whereas traditional Medicare is nonprofit. It, it serves seniors, you know, where they are in, in terms of what they need. And as Medicare Advantage has grown, it's become more profitable, and these companies have gotten better at sort of taking advantage of seniors, and now they've been caught. And so there's been more research highlighting areas where seniors have struggled to get the care they need, how much extra it costs the the U.S. in terms of uh, if you just covered those seniors through traditional Medicare. And so they really are trying to defend their profits at a time when they can see the Biden administration and Congress really put them in the crosshairs and and beginning to make steps to hold them more accountable for their actions. So who's behind this current information campaign and what are their goals here? Yeah, it's a great question. And the biggest player is what we refer to as AHIP or America's Health Insurance Plans, which really is sort of a a, a cabal of all the biggest insurers that put money in and then use AHIP as cover uh, for lobbying and direct political influence, sort of glad handing with politicians and to the extent possible with the White House. And so they are always going to work on behalf of uh, insurers' ability to profit, regardless of what that means for seniors. And so they're seeing the losses that you know pharma has had recently when it comes to things like insulin, when it comes to things like um, negotiating the cost of some drugs with Medicare. And insurers are scared too. They see that they're sort of next on the chopping block because they've had it so good for so long and, and Medicare Advantage has never delivered on the promise of actually lowering the cost of care or improving the quality of care. Well, let me ask you how that fits with the Washington Post editorial I saw, I guess, a couple weeks ago. A fiscally responsible government cannot keep its hands off Medicare. I was trying to sort of mentally separate Medicare and Medicare Advantage. I see you connecting them. And I see now the Washington Post saying, we just got to get into those funds. Like, what's the connection there? Yeah, it's a really important connection, and I think it's one of the one of the more challenging ones because I think one of the things that the Medicare Advantage plans and sort of the private insurers that profit off this do well is conflating the two, conflating Medicare Advantage and traditional Medicare. And the real the real issue is that traditional Medicare has always cost less; it's always served seniors more consistently, but 
it doesn't place ads. It doesn't fill the airways the way that Medicare Advantage plans do when someone's turning 65. These Medicare Advantage plans do a lot of often misleading advertising um, so that they can what we refer to as cherry pick the healthiest seniors and then lemon drop thicker seniors and make sure that they stay in traditional Medicare. Mm -hmm. And it's something that Medicare Advantage plans have gotten better at. And the the more people that are in Medicare Advantage, the more it's a threat to the long-term health of the entire Medicare program. Right now, we're close to uh, 50% of seniors on Medicare Advantage, and we know that it would cost a lot less to cover those seniors in traditional Medicare. And so it's, it is existential for the Medicare program, and it's something that in the short term, you know, the Biden administration and Congress really need to crack down on bad actors in Medicare Advantage. But in the long term, you know, moving towards a system that both improves uh, and expands traditional Medicare while at least putting Medicare Advantage on a level playing field. But in the long term, it's just unclear that there's any positive role for Medicare Advantage. Well, let me ask you, because I wanted to give you an opportunity to connect this and to talk about a new report that Public Citizen has done. But I know listeners will understand who are regular media consumers. For elite media, if anything is a public-private partnership, well, then that is the holy grail. That is exactly what we want, because heaven forbid anything be wholly public or publicly supported. And so public-private is kind of you know, that's the exemplar, just narratively, is my feeling from elite media. And I know that you've just released a new report on the role of private equity in healthcare. The role, maybe, is too gentle of a phrase. The report is called Private Equity's Path of Destruction in Healthcare Continues to Spread. So let me just ask you to break down a little bit for listeners. What is the problem that your mapping here, and how does it connect with these broader healthcare issues? Yeah, I think it, it really connects sort of at the nexus of profit. So private equity companies are, are generally sort of large, privately held. They, they don't have a lot of accountability or transparency. Many of them, if you tried to, if even if you knew their name and then you tried to search them on Google or somewhere else, you would not be able to find an uh, ounce of information. They're very secretive. Uh, they hold their secrets and investments close. Uh, some of the bigger ones you might be able to find a bit about. But they are shady actors, and their primary drive is profit above all else. And, and in healthcare, that's particularly scary because they also move much more quickly than even sort of traditional healthcare actors. I mean, to me, they're sort of even scarier in terms of their actions than, you know, traditional insurers that are also focused on profit, Mm -hmm. but do have a longer sort of timeline that they plan to have in the industry. If you're a private equity company, you want to buy in and you want to get out within three to five years and you want to pull as much as you can in terms of profit out. So it means really taking underhanded tactics like selling a hospital out from under the hospital administration. So you might buy this entire healthcare system. You sell that hospital immediately, sort of cash that check, and now you're charging that hospital that you just bought uh, a very expensive lease. If this is not a sort of a high-margin hospital or if it's in a rural area or an urban area, 
it may have a really difficult time staying in business. But as a private equity company, you don't care because you're about to sell that or you're about to flip it to somebody else and you're going to move on. Right. And that's that real sort of dedication to profit across the healthcare industry. And that's really what we go into the report, uh, you know, over nearly 15 different areas where private equity has engaged recently in the healthcare system and sort of scary places like uh, where they're going next, such as, you know, hospice or end-of-life care. Well, I'm just going to ask you finally and briefly, and we'll clearly talk much more in the future, but we know that policy is shaped by people's understanding of what is possible, and we know that news media shape that understanding. So for me, uh, corporate news media are chock-a-block with what they would call news you can use, like, can I apply for disability while on Medicaid? Does it make sense to divorce my spouse so that we could see if maybe I could maybe get my meds covered? You know, it's reporting that assumes that you're over a barrel and that masses of us are over a barrel, but is somehow too timid to say this is crazy and cruel and unnecessary and to talk about systemic change. And if anybody does, well, then they're a freak and they're actually a, a problem that needs to be contained. And so um, knowing that you can't say all you'd want to say, what are your thoughts about media coverage of this issue? Yeah, it, it is a challenging area. I think I think that some of the, the real bad actors in both private equity um, and in big pharma, Medicare Advantage and sort of other insurers, I think there is starting to be a bit of a, a different tone. I think Americans are having enough pain points and sort of uh, talking about them or, or, or coming together to push for, for, for things like Medicare for All. I think that's why, you know, during the 2016, the 2020, um, you know, presidential debates, there was just so much angst and frustration around the healthcare system and, and sort of real support for things like Medicare for All. And, and the, the sort of corporate media is certainly not there yet, but, but I think there, enough stuff is starting to break through that they can't can't just ignore it. And so you are starting to see, you know, even New York Times or the Washington Post really cover in more detail some of the fears around prescription drugs or around Medicare Advantage or some of the abuses that were seen even during COVID-19 by insurers and others. And it's, it's an important time to for folks to also tell their stories and to also get engaged because they want to demoralize us or the industries want us to stay demoralized and separated. But it's when we come together that we can really push for the change that we need. I'm going to end on that note. We've been speaking with Egan Kemp. He's health policy advocate at Public Citizen. You can find their work, including this new report on private equity and health care, online at citizen.org. Thank you so much, Egan Kemp, for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you. Appreciate it. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the national media watch group based in New York. If you missed part of today's show, you can find shows and transcripts on our website, FAIR.org. The website is also the place to learn about FAIR's newsletter, Extra, and to show support for the show if you are able and so inclined. Counterspin is engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin.